0: let's not pin our expectations of happiness on an event or a goal on a target. Let's start with happiness first. Let's embrace this idea that, you know, the world is an unpredictable place. So is radiology. So is everything around us. It's very unpredictable. And we know that crap will happen, right? So once you know that crap will happen, it's just a matter of what that crap is going to look like. How big is it going to be? And when is it going to happen? Then when you have a great day, you celebrate that because you're like, well, nothing bad happened today. I had an amazing day. I have my health. I have a family who loves me. The weather is great. I got great work done today. Let's celebrate that. Let's be happy.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Puneet Bhargava. Dr. Puneet Bhargava is a board-certified radiologist and a professor of radiology at the University of Washington, Seattle. He's the editor-in-chief for the journal Current Problems in Diagnostic Radiology. Dr. Bargava earned his MD at Karnataka Institute of Medical Sciences in India. In addition to his clinical work, he is passionate about exploring the skills required after medical school, such as wellness, creativity, personal finance, and so much more. He's also the host of a very popular YouTube channel and a prolific poster of great life advice. I was so excited to have you on the show. Our interests intersect in so many ways. You know, of course, radiology, but things like... Mental wellness, personal finance—you name it. You teach on it. You talk on it. So excited to have you on the show. It's gonna be a little bit different than some of the other ones that we've talked about. We're gonna talk a little bit about how you got into all of these areas of interest and um, what you've been doing to teach on them. So thank you so much for for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, thank you, Daniel. I'm very excited to be here, and I've been a huge admirer of what you're building in terms of the teaching platform and how you're, you know, kind of leveraging teaching you know, predominantly MRI to essentially the planet. I mean, it's it's awesome what you're doing. And, you know, I always admired you and it's uh, good to have this opportunity to get to know you and have this conversation.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And it's always fun to talk to another creator because you know what it's like that first time that you build a video and you put it out in the world, you go, does anybody care about this thing, right? But you just kind of keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, and eventually you know, you find your audience. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the ways that we're we're both kind of seeking to have an impact through teaching online. But let's start about your background. Take us back to the beginning. Where are you from? It sounds like you grew up in India. You find your way to Seattle, you know, one of my favorite places. Just talk a little bit about your your upbringing and, and then how you found your way into radiology and ultimately, you know, your practice today.
0: Yeah, so I come from a family of doctors. My grandfather um, was an anatomist, and my father is a pediatric surgeon. Mom's an OBGYN. They're now almost retired. I was born in India and then lived for 14 years in Libya in the Middle East, where my parents were working at the time, then went back to India for my medical school, and then spent a year in, in Perth, Australia, before I found my way to Seattle. So I've lived in Four different continents, and that gives me a unique perspective into all the things that I do. And the thing that drove me towards my interest in soft skills or non interpretive skills, whatever you'd like to call it, is that it dawned on me that when you go through your training as a radiologist, or for that matter, any professional training that you go through, you learn all the technical skills in school. But that does not translate into success. Like, for example, if if a radiologist can make amazing reports, but is really bad at communication, has no business skills, mismanages their finances, I wouldn't call them very successful. So it dawned on me pretty early that the key to success is, you know, these soft skills. Of course, the foundation is your clinical skills. Like if you didn't have any clinical skills and you were a bad radiologist, then the foundation is weak. But once you have that, I think there's a lot of learning to be done. And this learning is kind of optional. It's not set in stone. There's no curriculum. So we're all kind of left to learn. I'm sure you can correlate as someone who's building a business, like learning to manage business finances, how to find part-time help, freelancers, and how to find the best people and keeping them motivated is something that we all do every day, whether you're running a business or running a channel or even doing research. So that led me to this quest of uh, trying to find resources and slowly uh, building my skills. And then, since I spent a lot of time doing all this, one of my colleagues said, "Well, why don't you write about it?" And it's a fascinating story, and I think that can be a good segue into our discussion today. So the year is two thousand and nine, and I start as an attending, you know, just like your wife is about to graduate, you know, i I graduate. I get my first job. And then, I felt a little unnerved thinking that, okay, now I'm faculty at University of Washington. I'm supposed to teach at a high level, do research at a high level, make amazing report. How on earth am I going to do this? You know, like I really need help. So someone suggested that I go meet some senior faculty to see how they did it, which led to a series of meetings where I, for the first time, would set up meetings to just go listen. I would Mm -hmm. ask pointy questions. I would ask them to tell their stories. And I would just listen. After the meeting, I would take notes and try to find common threads that I I could use. And so six months went by. And after those meetings, I started to learn about getting things done methodology. Because I was like, if CEOs with 50,000 employees scattered all over the planet can live a life, (laughs) I, I can surely manage one life. So six months went by. I hadn't actually done anything. So one of my colleagues said, "Well, at least write about what you've learned, getting things done, or whatever you, it is that you're talking about." So I kind of wrote about it in a journal and found some collaborators to help me write it up. And man, that paper got rejected like nobody's business. Like <laughs> they were such scaling. Who co- did
1: you who did you submit the paper to?
0: To a radiology journal, like a mainstream journal that I don't want to name. but, but-
1: <laughs> <laughs> So first of all, two quick things. I'll let you jump back in. So, so one of the common themes of the podcast of many successful people that have come on is the value of mentorship. And I think one of the pieces that people don't think about is, you know, you're in training, you're in training, you're in training for so long. And so you're just ready to get out there and practice. But it's okay to seek mentors once you get into your first job. And it sounds like that was really important, informative yeah. thing and, for you to go seek that out actively. And then the, the second thing, so you talked about the getting things done methodology. I think we've talked about that before. What is the getting things done methodology? I'm a big fan, but for those who are uninitiated to the culture.
0: Yeah. So let's get into the cult of GTD, right? So <laughs> I, think that, I think the first thing in life is You know, there's no such thing as being an original, right? So, you know, like you are building a business, other businesses have been built before. Whatever it is that I try to do, whether it is to, you know, write a book, build a blog, build a channel, give a TED talk, whatever it is that I set my targets on, that has been done before. So, you need to find mentors who've done it before. They can shave off years. Off that timeline for you to reach that goal, and save a lot of energy and frustration along the way. So I think seeking mentors is just hypercritical, and it helps to have different mentors for different phases in your life. But now back to the story. You know the GTD methodology or the Getting Things Done. So this Getting Things Done is philosophy by David Allen, and that's a book for anybody starting their productivity journey. That that would be something for them to explore. But for me, I was like, you know, there I need to establish. A system, right? So there's a famous quote in Atomic Habits by James Clear that we fall to the level of our systems, right? So basically, if you establish a good system and it's a well-oiled machine, then you just have to rinse and repeat. So step number one is installing systems. So, so the GTD methodology is basically, you know, I have a six-minute video on that on the channel, you know, just to, but I'll give a very quick one-minute brief. But basically, it's a method for everything that that's coming in into your life, finding a way to processing it, figuring out if you're going to do it, if you're not going to do it, where to store it, and if you're going to do it, when are you going to do it, and kind of breaking the stuff that are like little things into small chunks, and then doing them immediately, and then looking at whatever else that you need to get done, and figuring out if it's a project or a task, and if it's a project, who are you going to do that project with? What are the multiple tasks, building some momentum? So I thought that was the building block for everything that I did. And now I run my life G- the GTD way. If I have to send a thank you note, my brain's thinking, well, this is a two-minute task. So why don't you do it now, even before you take your next bathroom break? You know, it's it takes more time to put in those two-minute tasks on your calendar than it takes to actually get the thing done. So I think you'll find that. Most successful, productive, creative people are using GTD or some part of it and have a system that's critical.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting for radiologists in particular. I think it's a skill that it needs to be thought about how to integrate because all of radiology is task oriented. It's one of the reasons people really like the field because you can kind of come into work, you know what the tasks are that you need to do. And so, you know, you kind of, and it's actually well-suited in some ways to the GTD methodology. Your whole work list is prioritized kind of for you, but that does not lend itself well then to more creative pursuits that you need to sort of orient around, which is, okay, I want to write a paper, I want to build a new service line, whatever it might be that you're interested in doing. And then how do you fit those into the day, especially in 2023, when The days of a zero work list are gone, you never have zero cases on the work list, so it can often feel punishing to even take a step away from the work list to go work on a project that might be in your sort of, not a task, but a project. Maybe you can talk a little bit about about how you approach that, since I'm sure you have the same challenges as everyone else there.
0: Yes. So I think a couple of things that I want to say. So... First of all, the GTD methodology or your productivity system or whatever it is that how you roll, having that system is sort of the building block to actually, you know, starting your race. Right. So that's like how you get started. But the road to creativity is something very, very different. So productivity is about getting things done very, very quickly. But I think the more you spend time thinking about productivity and the way I definitely think about productivity is how to get to the things that I want to do in my life, right? Not necessarily the things that need to be done, but the things that that are important to me. This is a means to get myself to that point. Now, creativity is sort of a different thing. Creativity is like you are trying to build something. You have to conceptualize it. You have to find the right idea. You have to make that idea connect. You have to tell a coherent story. You have to kind of get an emotional response from the other side. And it involves a lot of failures. Now, these productivity skills help you rebound from those failures quickly, right? So that, and it opens up more time to do that experimentation because creative individuals fail a lot, but smart creatives actually fail quickly and rebound quickly because they don't see failure in the traditional sense. They see failure as something that is kind of part of the process. Like this thing didn't work And so I got to try something else. In their head, they're not thinking failure, failure, failure. They're thinking, well, this process didn't work. So time for a new process, right? So I think of productivity as like a building block towards creativity. And I've written about the psychology of creativity in uh, JACR. And I made a video about it because the video actually hits very different. It's more visual. And I think deeply about creativity. And so I think the holy grail is in creativity, even if you don't make a lot of money being creative, but there's certainly a lot of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. So that if you've pursued a creative life, like when you're sort of in retirement and in your rocking chair, as like I like to think, you know, you can look back very satisfied. Versus if you just played it safe and never did anything creative in your life, then what are the stories you're going to tell your grandkids? That would be boring as hell.
1: So what are some of your tactical strategies for time management? Maybe tell us quickly about your practice. So you're, you're in academics. Like, What is your daily kind of work like? What are your sort of core responsibilities? And then how do you fit creativity into that?
0: Yeah, so I work full time, which in my department means that I work four full clinical days. I get the baseline one academic day a week. And we're pretty short-staffed, and like everybody else, we have long lists, right? So I think the approach that I have is, you know, when your list is several hundred long, which is not uncommon in radiology these days, right? Everybody has what's called bottomless lists where you come into work, and it's kind of a very defeating scenario where you can work hard all day, and your list can stay the same or potentially even get longer, right? Right. So I think at the end of the day, you have to make up your mind that you're going to be productive and you are going to be effective. You're Whatever you do, you're going to do it well. You're going to help patients. You're going to formulate management plans because that's what everybody needs. A radiology report should not be viewed as a set of data points, but as as like a guidance towards, you know, managing the patient appropriately. And then in your head, have like a number. It's helpful to have some concrete goals, like these are the studies, these are a the number of studies that you would like to read and go through that. And that is a satisfying day in these days, right? You hit a number that's in your head, which you view as like a productive day and be done with the day. But I think it helps to compartmentalize your life. So I do this planning every Sunday night where there's this technique called by Jim Rowan, which which is like, don't start your day until your day is done, meaning You've got to live your day the night before so that you know exactly what to do when and with some guidance for how roughly your day is going to go by. Like if you're going to have a very busy eight to five, then maybe your creative time is early in the morning or late at night and have no guilt about not doing anything Creative between eight and five. So, you've got to live your day before the day is done. And as you become more of an expert with that, then you start your week before the week is done, right? So, Sunday night, make a plan for what you're going to do and which days are going to be very busy clinically. Which days are you going to exercise? Which days are you going to hang out with your friends? Like, I play badminton with some of my buddies, and none of them are doctors. And it's a great thing. Like, it builds reaction time, it's a great workout but also the conversations on the sides are non-medical. And so they're very creative conversations. And it's just a great time. And find the time for exercise, find the time for creative pursuits, find the time to work and plan it out. Like the things, like Robin Sharma has a quote, like the only things that get done are the things that are planned, right? So plan out, find time on your calendar, get it done. And that's kind of my approach to it. But I think it helps to not, get in the weeds all the time, but do a periodic review, like a three monthly review or an annual review even, just to see like getting into these three months, what were your goals? And did you just get into this productivity GTD loop and were just spinning your wheels, but really not moving forward, right? So, and then if you didn't move forward, then figure out like why it happened so that it doesn't happen again. And then- Yeah,
1: one of the common things that I've seen from folks is setting unrealistic goals. And then when they don't hit them, getting really frustrated. So, you know, I want to be creative two hours a day, for example. And it's like, well, maybe that's not possible with your current job because, you know, four days of the week, you're on a really busy service. And then you afterwards have to pick up your kids from school. And it's just not realistic. And so what is realistic is picking that two-hour block where you're going to be really holy about it and and building from there and starting to get some wins. I think that planning, but then actually going back and checking if you achieved your plan is really key. One of the things that I read that always stuck with me was this concept of the calendar audit, where you kind of go back after a month or after three months, as you talked about, and you look at, okay, did I spend the time the way that I said I was going to spend the time? If not, okay, where kind of just like a budget, like where did I miss my you know plan and how do I you know adjust and make some incremental progress? And that kind of comes back to that comfort with failure, which is, all right, build a plan fail, adjust, build a plan, fail, adjust, and be comfortable in that failure, as opposed to so many people kind of try, fail, and then say, well, I guess it's not possible, as opposed to, you know, taking pride in the learning.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, there are some things that we just have to let go, right? I mean, there are things that I'm not going to do well, and that's by design, because there are things that I want to do well, right? So- You can't do everything at a very high level, so you got to pick and choose. And I think a calendar is great because one look at somebody's calendar and you can tell what their priorities are. That's easy, right? So I think motivation is a big piece of it. And I actually am a huge fan of this book called The 10X Rule. Now, the whole premise of this book is, so imagine you and I set a small goal, right? Work really hard, achieve the goal right? It took two years to get there, but we got there. We're very happy. We achieved the goal. But the bottom line is that goal was very small, right? That's because the, our target was very small. So we spent all this energy. We got there, but guess what? doesn't mean anything. Where was a very small goal? Now you take this 10X philosophy and now you make that goal 10X, right? You're struggling to find two hours of creative time, but now you made your goals 10X. Now what this 10X does is it forces you to think like, how are you gonna do this monstrous task? I mean, the goals are just so big and audacious that they're laughable. But when you plan that high, when you aim that high, you you tend to see little failures very differently because you don't have the time to solve. You just have to like go because these are big, hairy, audacious goals. So I think you know, I always remind myself that don't aim for small goals, because even an if you... example
1: of a 10 X goal you have in your current life.
0: Yeah. So I could have, when I started my YouTube channel, right. I had to set up a target, right? Like if you're a runner, you know, you know, if you're running a hundred meter race or a 400 meters race, you don't start running, not knowing what the end point is. Right. So when I look at my channel, there's like two goals, right? One is a goal that I can control, which is how many videos I make. I have full control over that. Now, whether one person sees it or a million people see it, I don't control that. All I can do is focus on the quality and focus on, you know, the experience that people get from watching those videos and giving them a full audiovisual experience, right? So they're, they don't feel like they're wasting their time because the bar for entry these days into anything creative is really low. Like our phones can get us into that space in a minute, but success the bars really really high because you're competing with the elite of the elite so the goal that I sent for myself is like you know make a video a week and continue to do that for a few years so I had to tell myself like I'm not I'm not becoming a youtuber I'm embracing the creative life which is very different from a life where you know you you live that every day like it, it's a different life right? It's, it's a high-energy, fast-paced life. But then as you get really good, you you start to see the rewards. And when you see the rewards, then you can calibrate, even though you don't control them. But from time to time, I kind of celebrate. Like, for example, like we hit 150 videos on the channel. Now, many of them are like repurposed content into short forms and whatnot. But I never thought when I started day one that I would ever reach 150 uploads, right? And then in the next uh, four to six weeks, we're going to reach 250,000 views on the channel, which, you know, a lot of YouTubers have like views in the millions, but, you know, I just started in the last year and to get around, like, imagine 250,000 people, like how many people that is, right? So I always take back and have gratitude for the luck that has come my way. Everybody has effort, right? But there's destiny, there's luck. Uh, I don't, believe in those things, but you know that they're there. You know, timing is can affect hugely. There's like a lot of history behind people doing the same product, but the timing wasn't right. So they failed and the same person does exactly the same thing and the timing happens to be right and they're wildly successful. So I think, you know, I can only focus on the small goals, right? So rather than getting fixated on how many hundred uploads on the channel, I can say one main uh long form video a week is my goal, The ten x goal would be, you know, to hit one million views on the channel. And I know that when I hit one million views on the channel is I'm not going to stop there. I can't control that goal. But if I do get there, I know that the momentum will be so strong that the quality of content that I produce and the kind of people that I'm hanging out with will be ten x above, you know, where I'm operating right now. So I think the magic is in the journey. I I try to collect small wins. And if you think about what you and I are doing today, you know, I've been in academics for many, many years. I've written a ton of papers, but the reason you and I connected was because of my work uh, on social media and the YouTube channel. So it's like a very fascinating space to be in right now.
1: Speaking of papers, you wrote a paper about the importance of embracing unpredictability and specifically you called it fostering anti-fragility. Um, I think some of this is kind of coming through and what you talk about being comfortable with just trying new things and failing and, and finding the positives in that. I think this concept is important more than ever right now as we hear about the challenges radiologists are facing. So you argue that anti-fragility is a mindset. Uh, what are specific strategies, practices that you recommend to folks here um, and how how can radiologists really foster that
0: culture? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. So let's be critical of our fraternity, right? We have it really, really good. We are all very lucky and blessed to be in the field of radiology. And yet, I think uh, as a self-criticism of myself and my community, we complain a lot, right? Our life is really, really good, but we complain a lot. And we're quite commonly unhappy or unhappy from time to time. And I think that comes down to expectations, right? So once you start with gratitude, um that you're lucky that you're in radiology and you get to do radiology, that's a great starting point. And then happiness is a choice, right? Now, this idea of like putting your happiness on like an event or a goal and saying, "I'm going to be happy when this happens, I think you know there's a happiness equation that the wrong equation is do good work, be successful. Then be happy. So, how you see, like you're starting off well, you're doing good work, but who defines success? Well, you know, who knows? Like you define it. other people define it, you know, external validation. What is it? And then only after you get there, are you going to be happy, which means that you may never be happy. So I think the the bottom line is you reverse all of this. And so you start with happy first. Happy is a choice, right? If I'm happy, you want to hang out with me because you're having a happy time, right? I truly believe that happy people do good work, right? So when you're happy and you are doing good work, does success even matter at that point? You know, who cares? You know, you've done yeah. good work, you were happy. And the amazing thing is, then success follows. Then it kind of follows you as like, grab me. And you're like, well, I wasn't after you in the first place, but there's success standing waiting for you, right? That's kind of how I feel. So I think this anti-fragility mindset is like managing expectations, right? So let's not pin our expectations of happiness on an event or a goal on a target. Let's start with happiness first. Let's embrace this idea that, you know, the world is an unpredictable place. So is radiology. So is everything around us. It's very unpredictable. And we know that crap will happen, right? So once you know that crap will happen, it's just a matter of what that crap is gonna look like how big is it going to be? And when is it going to happen? Then when you have a great day, you celebrate that because you're like, well, nothing bad happened today. I had an amazing day. I have my health. I have a family who loves me. The weather is great. I got great work done today. Let's celebrate that. Let's be happy. And when crap does happen, instead of being upset that crap did happen as if like you were thinking crap was never going to happen, then you're like, okay, it's, it's time me to become stronger because i knew that something bad was going to happen now it's here let me figure out how to deal with it and let's let me be stronger and let's face it right so i think that mindset is completely different and i think uh, i really do believe that happiness is a choice and sometimes i think international travel is great like if you travel internationally like i think especially for us americans like we have it so good here like amazing, like we can travel wherever I want, wherever we want, you know, we can click a button and stuff shows up at the door. Like it's it's ridiculous. You know what, you want to eat something, but you don't want to go get it. Okay, somebody who's going to go get it for you. Like none of these comforts actually existed even until a few years ago. So we have it really, really good. And having just that perspective about being anti-fragile, and this is coming from Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, there's plenty of ideas um, where bad stuff can happen. So when good things are happening, let's be happy about that. And let's celebrate that. And and small wins lead to big wins. So as you're trying to build a business, Daniel, as I'm trying to build a channel and become more creative in my own life, you know, let's celebrate the small wins along the way, right? Let's let our small successes that are leading to big successes, let those happy moments kind of have a life of
1: what's been the reaction to this article and this mindset Have you had anyone poke holes at it disagree with it or have you had people come up to you say hey that was helpful like you've helped me kind of reframe my thinking I'm just curious to hear because I think this message is an important one to have at this time I could also imagine people saying yeah that's all well and good but and then giving a list of their litany of challenges that they're facing right now in their in their daily life I'm just kind of curious to hear um, if you've heard any feedback
0: I have. So actually, when the article came out, there were several radiologists who actually emailed me and thanked me for writing this. And some of them actually read the book and listened to the authors' lectures on uh, YouTube and and kind of explored this idea more deeply. I didn't face any criticism, but I suppose you can always look at anything in life and, and not agree with it and when you're building anything like you have a company that's kind of in the public domain i have a channel that's in the public domain you kind of become a little bit thick skinned about these things that not everybody is going to like what you're going to do but you're not going to let let anybody stop you like for example if somebody who isn't even willing to put their name onto how they're messaging me try to criticize me like they're not even showing any courage like if you're going to criticize me at least tell me who you are so we can have a deep <laughs> decent conversation, right? And so criticism will come like all of us we need to understand that we'll all be judged in some way, right? how we look, how we talk, what we say, how we inadvertently perhaps rub somebody the wrong way where we said something like nobody is perfect, right? And we're all trying to become the better versions of ourselves, right? So if somebody met me like ten years ago, you know, I'm a different person now and so is so are you, and so is everybody else. So, at some point you just have to kind of let go. This is like a way of thinking, you know, and in the creator space, like, it's like, you know, you're offering an idea, you're offering uh, a solution, you're offering some thoughts, take it or leave it. You know, you're welcome to disagree. You know, I'm very open to criticism, but let's have a discussion about it, a very respectful discussion about it. And then, you know, Everybody's welcome to think how they do. This is just a way of thinking where the bottom line is there's no one approach to anything. There's no one approach to being happy. If this works for a few people, and makes me a little bit happier. That makes me happy that I was able to make somebody else happy.
1: Yeah, I think this this happiness mindset was actually, um, I had the opportunity when I was working at Google to take a meditation class by a guy who was an early engineer at Google. And he had kind of, in his second wave of his career found meditation and and rebranded himself as Google's chief happiness officer. And he taught this course on, on meditation, which I didn't end up knowing was going to be so much about happiness. But the whole concept was the happiness deriving from within. As you talked about, the front of the happiness equation is just choosing to be happy. And the metaphor that always stuck with me was your happiness is an ocean. It's very deep and there are waves. And so there's waves that are up and they're down. But if you actually zoom out of the ocean, the waves are actually just a tiny, tiny piece of the whole ocean. The ocean is very deep. And so you can have a deep well of happiness, even, even though, you know, good things happen, bad things happen, you know, hour to hour, day to day, whatever it might be, that cannot affect your happiness. You you have this deep reserve. And that just totally changed my worldview to the point that, you know, obviously 15 years later, I can still, you know, remember was it where I was and I've learned it. And I think this applies to people and it also applies to companies. Um, And so one of the things that I've tried to imbue in my company is a happiness mindset is a optimistic mindset, because for sure my company will get punched in the face every day, different things you can't expect things you can't expect, whatever it might be. And so if we're not, you know, dealing with these reserves of happiness, our customers are, you know, when we deal with partners and we deal with potential faculty, whatever it might be they they feed positively off that energy, as well as we need to be ready to brace the storms that come our way. So um, I've tried very much to live this, but I know uh, it's always easier said than done when you're in the moment. So having that that ability to kind of step back and smile is, is really key. And I wonder, you know, you talk a little bit about the importance of soft skills. You're in an academic setting. Have you seen programs start to try to find ways to teach these soft skills? Like, what have you been finding? Obviously, you, you teach through your program, you teach through journals. Like, what's the state of, call it, soft skills education in residencies today?
0: Yeah, I think there's still a lack of full realization on how critical this is. Like, our education is focused on the technical aspects of radiology for the most part and these skills come as an afterthought sometimes but i think any trainee who works with me knows that when when they work with me they're going to get a healthy dose of like <laughs> <laughs> whether they
1: ask for it or not <laughs> if they ask for it or not
0: you know they're they're going to get they're going to get uh, you know a healthy dose of some of these skills because what i want to do is like when i work with someone or, you know, I'm mentoring them, I'm not just mentoring them to be successful in the project, I'm mentoring them and teaching them life success skills. And I'd rather have the project fail and have them succeed in life, than have them, you know, finish the project, but like, not do great in life. So I think it's something that you kind of live and breathe every day, and try to touch as many people as you come in contact with. But I think my one of my bigger motivations of kind of doing this in the public domain was to amplify the message by touching as many people as I potentially could. Not too many people operate in that space. So I think the reason uh, it's not being done as much is there's, there's few people who will talk about these things and a ton of people who will talk about liver imaging or rectal cancer MRI and, and whatnot. I think those skills are pretty commonly found.
1: Well... I imagine something like happiness is a hard one to teach in an academic setting where everything's empirical and maybe a little harder to prove what's the right way to teach happiness. But something like personal finance is a topic you certainly could teach in residency. There is a plenty of tried and true best practices for um, living a financially successful lifestyle, especially post-training. I guess on this topic. One is, do you think residency programs have a responsibility to teach these skills? Or do you think it's fine that it's sort of left to the doctors to pursue their own education in this area? And then two, kind of talk to us a little bit about your journey through personal finance. I know you read a lot about it. You've done some posts on it. What have you found to be some of the more impactful books that you've read on on the topic?
0: Yeah. So historically, when I grew up, like talking about money over the dinner table as as I was a kid, was a complete no-no. We never spoke about money. And and that was like so sad because I speak to my kids about money all the time. They make fun of me because they all know the word diversification. And <laughs> when, when it comes up, like they start laughing because they're like, okay, daddy started all over again. But yeah, I talk about it. I teach them the value of money. I teach them how to spend it. So, you know, my wife gives the kids an allowance. And so when the allowance runs out and they're miserable. You know, we let them be. That's a very valuable skill to learn. So I think we need to start at home, educate our kids and at work with with residents. I think we have an obligation, but not a requirement to teach, right? So, you know, I will often find some really old doctors still working and maybe they're working because they love what they do, but many are still working because they have not managed their money well. Like these are high income people probably one top 1% earners in the country, and they don't have enough money to retire. And like there's been so many surveys that have been done, which you see the net worth of these high income individuals, and it's pathetic. They have a spending problem. They live life big. They they actually don't know where their money is going. And they basically buy stocks and, uh, you know, they're gambling away their money. They have no plan. And so I think uh, there's two parts to personal finance. Uh, one is knowing knowing the history of finance and knowing what has worked in the past. But the past in personal finance does not predict the future, right? All we can do is we can learn from the history and sort of believe that the history kind of repeats itself, which it does, which is the whole premise of like index investing, right? And then there's the whole, my favorite book on the other side is The Psychology of Money, which is uh, by Morgan Housel, and and that books teach you like how to think about money. Uh, the Millionaire Next Door is a great book about how to think about money. I have a video on the psychology of money. I have a Grand Rounds video that I've presented to several departments within the University of Washington system. That's on the channel. I have a full personal finance playlist, and you know it's a very finite topic. It can be learned in two to three hours at best. But the critical skill is, you know, how do you stay strong and stay the course when it's flashing red in the stock market, right? So when the TV is going, when the media is going uh, all ballistic on like heaven and earth falling and the US economy is done and, you know, how do you fight that and say, I'm going to withdraw all my money and put get it in cash and put it below, you know, my, <laughs> you know, you have to fight those urges and you have to fight that, okay, whatever's happening is kind of cyclical. We've had nuclear explosions, world wars, and yet here we are, right? So I think we've got to believe that the humankind and the U.S. economy is resilient. Whatever happens, we have this ability to bound back. I mean, the whole humanity wakes up every morning and goes to work. Surely the economy is gonna continue to plot along, right? So you just have to kind of have that perspective. And then I Will Teach You To Be Rich is a great book. Uh, It gives you like a stepwise framework to get started in your financial journey. Like, this is the critical part about success. Like, if you were a very talented radiologist and you ran courses, you traveled around the world, you know, teaching about very complicated, you know, MRI topics, but you're mismanaging your money and you are miserable in retirement, I don't see that as success. I mean, that in many ways is a big failure. So I think, you know, we, we get so hyper-focused on the clinical aspects of medicine that sometimes even something as basic as doing a good job with our money. I mean, life is not a Disney movie. Nobody's going to come and save us at the end, right? I mean, we will face the effects of money mismanagement at some point in our career. So I'm very responsible with my money. I tend to spend more money on creative projects. Like I, I spend a lot of money on my channel, on my equipment and whatnot, because that brings me joy. And I spend money on experiences, but you know, a lot of other things, like big ticket, like having the best house that all my money can buy. that's not as important to me. We have this agreement in our family, especially between my wife and I, that small expenses we don't discuss. And what small means you you can define. So maybe you know twenty dollars, fifty dollars will be you know something you would discuss when you're on a resident salary and maybe when you're in an attending salary depending on how far along you are in your career, maybe a hundred dollars or $500 or a thousand dollars might be a relatively small expense that doesn't have to be discussed between a couple, but certainly the big expenses have to be discussed. And we, we think about, right. Well, is this money worth spending because we know and understand the value of money? Like, you know, we all have like life values. And one of my life values is to make decisions by taking money out of the equation. So If I want to do something, I shouldn't have to do it for the money. Now, I may do it for the money, but I don't necessarily have to. That gives me the ability to say no to things that I may not be very excited to do because I need the money. And how do you get there? And that is by achieving financial independence, by being responsible with your money, with investing it in an indexed fashion and not picking stocks and gambling and doing crypto and all the things that... Most people think they understand, but they really don't, and they, they're they wasting their money. And then getting to the point where at some stage in our lives, like this is a word that's not very intuitive in the American culture, and that is enough, where at some point you've got to sit back and say, you know what, I have enough money to have a decent retirement. I'm not implying that we stop working or stop aiming for more. But just having that enough is a game changer, because then you can take decisions without money factoring in. And that is a beautiful thing. And that actually happens a lot before you hit your target, because, you know, the magic of compounding, like you'll just know looking at your net worth that you're about two, three, four, five years away from that point. And you start taking decision in a way where, you know, money is out of the equation, essentially. Because you have enough and you know that if you just keep working for a couple more years, you will have enough. And you may not have put these words on it, but essentially, you know that, that that is starting to happen.
1: Thinking about personal finance and then kind of coming back to this concept earlier from getting things done, I think one of the things too that is hard for folks is to figure out like, when do you do these things? Because you got a full work day, you know, you mentioned you're working four days a week, but you also have a rigorous academic schedule. You know, okay, so now this is my nights and weekends hobby is managing my finances, and I, I think that's one of the things where it gets just overwhelming. I've seen for a lot of people who are managing, you know, at this stage in their career, probably also young kids, trying to be as productive as they can in their jobs, and so trying to keep it simple. I think early on and just spending less than you make and saving a, a percentage that is high enough is a really key. Yeah, and I think having.
0: You know, a lot of these things, there's work up front. Like you're going to get a disability policy once. You're going to get a life insurance policy hopefully yep. once, right? So you, yeah, there's there's four to six weeks of work, you know, up front. But then set it up in a way that when the paycheck comes in a month, look at your expenses for the month, look at what the plans. And then first of the month, you just kind of invest the money and you don't think about money for the rest of the month. So you can yeah, the work up front and then coming,
1: it comes uh, back to that planning and calendaring. It's it's uh, okay, this is the day of the month that we spend whatever an hour on this, 2 hours on this and we talk through any big big decisions that we've got. Exactly. Coming up. So, we're almost at the end of our time. I I'm, I'm curious as you look at your YouTube schedule, how do you pick which topics to post on?
0: So, initially I wanted to do things that I was passionate about the things that I was already talking about, the things that honestly I would have taught my kids. And there was like uh, a little bit of randomness by design. But as time goes on, you kind of have to kind of make an avatar of your prototype audience in your head. And there's softwares like TubeBuddy and vidIQ that actually define this for you. These softwares, you can buy their subscriptions and they actually tell you And even YouTube's studio app that is available to creators will tell you where's your viewership, how old they are, you know, what's the percentage between male and female. And they also tell you like, what are the keywords that people that watch Mm -hmm. you are also interested in and what other channels they follow and where where is your viewership? You know, there's a lot of people uh, like my channel viewership is about 30% or so in the U.S about 22% in India, and then a smattering of other countries. So only about half is like USA and India, and then everything else is kind of two, three, 4% here and there. So you realize that whatever videos you're making have to appeal to basically everyone from Africa to in Seattle, right? So the way you would make that is that you would kind of keep concepts generic, don't get too hyper-focused on what's happening in Seattle, but rather to do storytelling because people forget facts and, but they remember the stories. So you have to develop some storytelling skills, then talk about concepts from maybe perhaps like a well-known book, but then end the video with like actionable, practical items and tell more stories from how you have used them and found them effective, but give some simple tips along the way but how you do these three things has to be done in an inspirational way so not only are you teaching you are inspiring a change so eventually when you go through this journey and you make you know about 100 videos you know the first five or 10 videos are going to be really bad because you're kind of learning your equipment and you're just kind of you know how to speak but you don't speak well on camera and you're trying to figure out editing and all of that but by the time you go through you know 50 100 videos you know who your audience is, you know what they want, and you you just kind of do storytelling and teaching and inspiring all at the same time. And, you know, growth on YouTube, it's, uh, you know, there's a huge element of luck involved and planning involved. None of this growth is actually predictable. But like I said, I'm always focused on the things that I can control and not worry too much about the things that I can't control. The way I look at it is that each video is kind of like an audiovisual experience from my side so that if you were to watch one video, you're hooked. You know, you want to keep coming back. That's all that I can do. And that's all that I strive to do.
1: Well, I love that. And I think the the concept of understanding your audience is, is really critical. We definitely went through a journey of that in the building of modality around, okay, who's our audience? What is it that they need to know? And one of the things that we kind of zeroed in on is, all right, I'm a community radiologist. Now we have customers in a hundred countries, just like you're talking about, right? Everyone from Africa to radiologists at MGH. You go, all right, well, what's, what's a common thread here? And so where we landed was if I'm a community radiologist practicing in Texas and I want to provide the best possible care to my patients, what are the areas where I might be struggling or where the Um, standards of care have changed and what do I need to know to provide the best in class care to my patients today? And so that's been really narrowing for us in a way that makes it, okay, stroke imaging is now changed and this is the new standard of care. So here's what you need to do, or prostate MRI, has changed. This is what you need to do. And so I I found kind of that process of going through the audience discovery to fit. You you can't serve all audiences, right? We can't Mm -hmm. always be teaching on this is what people are doing with AI. This is what people are doing with seven Tesla magnets. Well, I don't have either of those things in my practice, but what do I need to do today to be better is really key. And I think we're still in the discovery phase of this podcast. Like who's the audience for the podcast? What is it we're trying to talk about? Who are we trying to talk to? And it's been a fun journey. I I I really enjoy that part of the experience, really uncovering the the needs of of those customers. So, Doctor Barger, I really enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. You are an absolute dynamo, and it's I've really enjoyed subscribing to your channel and learning from you on on such varied topics. I think you're a really refreshing voice to have in uh, the field of radiology right now. So I really appreciate everything you're doing for the community and for taking some time to come on the podcast.
0: No, thank you, Arnold. I greatly appreciate this opportunity, and again, it's an honor to be here. And um, I wish you well in growing your business and in serving the radiology community. You're providing a very valuable service to not just radiologists in America, but globally, where you know the teaching is not as good, and you're you're making this unique connection between top-notch educators and those who are willing to learn and and get better. So. I think that's what it's about, but, you know, both you and I have to do that in a sustainable way where we continue to, you know, find joy with what we do and just kind of be happy. Like like, <laughs> like I said in the podcast, you know, continue to believe that happy people do good work. And when happy people are doing good work, who cares about success anyway? And success will follow.
1: Dr. Puneet Bhargava, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report Podcast. Be sure to visit us at theradiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.